nights is I, I feel always very motivated and inspired to play the best tennis on the Grand Slams, particularly here. Welcome back, everyone, to the Love Means Nothing podcast, episode 11, Wimbledon finals recap. I'm sure everyone's exhausted from the weekend, soaking up all that tennis, uh, you know, a lot of watching the TV, emotionally exhausting for the players and for us viewers. So, but definitely a fun weekend on the men's and women's championship. And we're here to recap both of them, but we're going to start off with the men's and then talk about the women's, but Drew, I'm here with my co-host Drew and what, what are your thoughts? Just, just generally, how are you feeling after those two finals? Novak Djokovic, Wimbledon champion, his seventh Wimbledon title. He's matched Pete Sampras, who was a god on grass in terms of Wimbledon titles. He's passes Roger Federer with 21 now in the all-time count. I think that argument is slowly fading, the Federer-Djokovic um, debate, because the, you know, the Federer fans were holding on. And I love Roger Federer so much as well, but it's starting to look like Novak might even be the greatest player on grass of all time. Um, but yeah, I, I, I feel like I've never, okay, we started this podcast bef- like after the Australian Open, obviously watched the French Open, but that final was kind of a joke. So I've never really analyzed a match in detail and just kind of saw Novak's greatness for every single point that goes on and just how hard it is to play him. Um, that's, that's my take on it. And I also feel now a little bit awful that Wimbledon's over. And I love the normal tour, but it just feels like Sunday Scary's tennis version where... Look, look, look. Yeah, look, Sunday look. Scaries have hit me about Wimbledon being over. So Look, everyone, every big tennis fan goes into that little kind of, uh, you know, dip, that little dip into depression after after a major championship and i'm just happy we were not able to go watch it live because i'll tell you after the u.s open last year after going to the event seven eight maybe nine days out of the total um i was feeling pretty bad when it ended and but but i guess i guess the, the good thing is this isn't the u.s open the season is not coming to a close we have the u.s open swing we got some 1000 events and the u.s open so yes Sunday scaries for sure, but but things yeah are right feel around like the corner. Whole, my whole mental capacity, my brain was just thinking about Wimbledon for the last two weeks, like the matches that are coming up next. Who has a chance to win? You know, will Novak get his twenty-first uh, slam? Will he not? And now I just feel like I have a lot of bandwidth, which I guess is good, considering I do have a job. But um, yeah, it's just a disappointment that it's that, it, that it's over. I was. Coming into the tournament, expecting Novak to win the event, I definitely wasn't expecting Kyrgios to make the finals. And I think it pretty much lived up to my expectation. I think there wasn't the flashy tennis that we've seen from Kyrgios or Djokovic. It wasn't necessarily as flashy, but it was as entertaining. I say I would say it lived up to the hype, right? More or less. It didn't. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't an all-time great final, but at the same time, it was. It was. It was a good, solid final. Right. No, I mean it wasn't your your classic Novak Rafa French Open five set final, but it 
held my attention throughout. And there was at no point during the match did I think that Novak had it in the bag until maybe until maybe six one in that fourth set tiebreak. Even then, I was like, you know, yeah, in, in, actually, even, yeah. even then, in theory, I was like. Four of those points are going to be on Nick's serve, I think, something like that. So, in reality, Djokovic has two match points on his serve, and it's very plausible that Nick hits four aces on those. So, I really wasn't counting Nick out until until it was he netted that last shot. It was 6-1, right? And then he got – it was 6-3, and he won 7-3 in the tiebreak. I think at 5-1, I was thinking if Nick could have won that point at 5-1, it was actually kind of a long rally that went back and forth. And if Nick could have gotten it to 5-2 – and then maybe held and got into 5-4, then he could have won it. But Nick looked rattled in that tiebreak. I mean, he started with a double fault. We can talk about the match was defined a little bit. I know we're coming from the end, but the match was kind of defined by double faults a little bit. Uh, Djokovic started the match with a double fault, which was funny. Um, but that tiebreak was, I think, pretty disappointing from Kyrgios, even though he did hold those last two points at the end. It was errors. It was all errors. I don't think there was any Djokovic winners uh Kyrgios missing forehands down the line yelling at his box starting with a double fault starting with the wrong foot he even had a chance to get the he got the mini break back uh made it two was two one and with Djokovic missing an easy forehand into the net but just again Djokovic came right back and broke him so when it talks to you know living up to the occasion I think that tie break showed the real experience that Djokovic had because I think that whole fourth set it was about Nick getting to a tiebreak because he wasn't getting really any looks on, on Novak's server in the rallies. And it was like, if you can get to a tiebreak, I think it happened. That's what I was thinking, at least for him. But then he bottled it. Well, yeah. I mean, honestly, I was thinking I, during that fourth set, I was like, if this does go to a tiebreak, yes, it's anyone's game. But I think Novak has the upper hand because throughout that fourth set, Novak was serving impeccably. And Curios was as well. But he always kind of let he would always get these forty love leads and kind of let Novak in into the game, even if Novak didn't break him. And having more looks at the Curios serve, Novak even said in his post post match press conference that he even when he was down love forty, he just wanted to try and get some returns in the court because it was practice. And then going into that fourth set tiebreak, I, I knew the advantage was Novak, but I wasn't sure that he was going to win it. Yeah, any, anything could happen, especially if Kyrgios would have gotten a mini break. But Novak's first serve win percentage, can you have any idea what that was? Because it was really hot, this, this match. I know for a fact his second serve return percentage was insanely high, but his first serve win percentage, 87%. Close, 83, which is still, you know, amazing. Um and his second serve win percentage was 61. I think Nick's return, second serve return, was something that he should have taken advantage of, but he just wasn't able to do it, especially on his forehand. Like, he, he even knows that that's a weakness of his. He said it, that people are going to attack my forehand. But His forehand return? His forehand return. But he was not – I think there was once on a backhand – he hit one backhand return winner off of Novak's second serve, but I can't remember him – really taking advantage of the times that Novak hit a second serve, you know? Yeah, yeah I agree. I actually, in my mind, I remember that backhand down the line. Yeah. It was like an inside-in backhand on the deuce side, obviously. It was, yeah, it was a big shot. And I was like, if he can replicate this, it would be scary stuff. 
But I'm going to give credit to Karras. I think he played overall. He served incredibly the entire match. Like, he had a couple lapses, right? Obviously, he got broken once in the second and the third set. But I thought he, he rose to the occasion as well as he could for someone who's never been to a – he impressed me way more than, I think, Berrettini did last year, for example. Oh, 100%. He was extremely I, impressive. comparison because they both have big serves, whatever. But. The – Oh, like, yeah, I, I think it was, he definitely rose to the occasion. Sure, he had like a little bit of lapses in the tiebreak, but he was serving very well throughout. And I mean, honestly, I, I can't believe Novak won this because this was the most troubled I've ever seen Novak with someone serve that I can remember. Because maybe some, maybe with Berrettini in some matches, but he was just wrong footed. He was, he was going the wrong way. He was leaning the wrong way so many times over and over again. I don't know if he was anticipating it to go one way, if he was, it was total guesswork. I don't know what the thought process was behind Novak returning, but there were some times that I was just wanted to close my eyes for Novak because it looked, it looked yike. He was moving one way off balance and then the server go right by him. So, and, and you saw the frustration creep out as well. He was getting pissed at himself as well towards that. I think in that fourth set. Kyrgios had 30 aces in the match, and his first serve percentage was 73%. And if you think for someone who can hit it a buck 40, uh, a buck 20 would slice, that's a ridiculous first serve percentage. Um, but, I, you know, the first set, when they came out, I was expecting both of them to be nervous, and both of them were nervous. But it wasn't a situation where we, we talked before the match, and we said, if Nick can come out and make Novak feel his pressure, it would be something where Novak would have to be concerned going into the second set. But I think other than the serve, I think Novak did not, like other than Nick's serve being sublime in the first set and Novak's serve being subpar, I don't think that Novak was troubled in the rallies in the first set. I don't think Novak was troubled in the rallies throughout the match. I I don't think Nick ever... He came up with some good shots for sure, but he was never Novak never looked off balance when they were in an extended rally. Yeah, Nick hit a couple of winners, but it was always it was always Novak looking looking solid off the ground, and that's what that's what I said his game plan should be. And it seemed like, to be honest, the game plan that I highlighted in our final finals preview was exactly what he was doing. He was trying to yeah, he incorporated some drop shots for sure, which I didn't. I didn't say he should, but it was stay on the baseline, get those backhand to backhand rallies, attack Nick's backhand, don't let him redirect on the backhand, and do everything you can to neutralize his serve. And I think he, for the most part, did all of that, and also coupled with some drop shots here and there that were executed honestly pretty well. I think uh, his drop shots were this 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 match was the best I've seen Novak Djokovic hit drop shots maybe ever in, in, in a match because he was hitting them at the right times and he was hitting them when Kyrgios was off the court or deep and then he was kind of pressing forward you know the first exactly. set the first set that the break that Nick did get was a Novak double fault and then Nick kind of just cruised on serve I don't think Novak had a look he had a look at the 5-4 game um where Nick was it was got to deuce but yeah the first set was kind of over and my thought after the first set was Kyrgios just got a set. He should be thinking in his mind, every time Novak plays someone and he loses the first set, he goes into this lockdown mode. And I think 
Nick's mindset should have been, I have to jump on him early in the second set because if Novak gets comfortable with his groundies, then it's going to be tough sledding for me. It's hard to think about that when you're up. You don't want to be thinking like that, but the potential of what your opponent um, could do. But I, I don't, I didn't like necessarily the way that Nick came out in the second set. And then when he got broken, the game that he got broken, in the beginning of the game, he was arguing with his box. And this is the second set when he was already up a set, arguing with his box. That first serve in the game that he got broken was 110 miles an hour. So he kind of just threw it in. Novak won that point and then ended up breaking. So those are the small margins. Nick, re- Nick, Nick realized he's never been taken into those deep waters before at a major. And he's never – I think he finally – gained the ultimate respect for Novak during this match, you know, even after he, after beating him twice, I think he finally realized what it's like to play someone who's a legitimate 21 time Grand Slam champion. Yeah. He certainly gained some respect for Novak at the end of this match. He even mentioned it uh, when they were doing the trophy ceremony, but I I don't really agree with the fact that I think he, I think in the second set, he he did everything he should have. I mean, maybe he could have gone bigger, but I don't think, I think throwing in one or two serves, some off-speed pitches is not a terrible idea because Novak is probably not expecting it. I think the talking to the box is, for him, it's just a way of getting out his emotion. It's, it doesn't have really anything to do with – it's gonna, not going to be indicative of his performance moving forward on the court. We saw so many times where he'd be chirping at the box, swearing, looking like he was in a pissy mood, coming out and hitting an ace. So I think that – I mean, what was the reason? Do you even understand what? Because apparently he was mad because they weren't they weren't clapping or something. They weren't engaging the match. I think was in the yeah. I, I don't know. I think that's I think it. What it was was Nick on the court was realizing how every single point against Novak is mattered. So and this isn't this isn't some normal match where at forty love you can just be like I'm going to win this game. And his box, I think, were still acting. He looked at his box, and the box was. I don't think they didn't realize what he was going through on the court against Novak is, is what, what, what I felt from him. And he's like, you guys are 40 love. You think the game's over. You don't understand who I'm playing. Novak is not missing any returns. He's he, every time he's just like, how does he never miss a return? So I think that was the disconnect kind of between Nick and his box. I think he was frustrated because it was just so hard for him out there and they didn't seem to understand what he was going through, you know? No, I, yeah, I totally agree. Cause it's it didn't look like he was getting destroyed by any means and he wasn't getting destroyed by any means but being out there and especially for Nick Kyrgios not being able to do what he can do that's that's going to be frustrating and that's not something that you can see as a spectator even if you're his coach you know anyone on his team that's not something you're going to be able to visibly see and I think the the frustration with his box was somewhat warranted maybe they should have given been giving him some more positive energy especially at that 40 love game honestly if 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 it's a big match you're serving you're up 40 love and you lose even the first point there is a little like there's a little bit like oh shit you know what i mean like fuck if i lose once you get to once you get to 30 40 that's when it really the panic really starts, or 40-30, the panic really starts setting in because it's like, sure, if it was 30-all or something and then it's 40-30, yeah, it's a, it's a big point, of course, but in your head, you're still focused on the game. But every time that you're up 40-30 and you were up 40-love, the panic alarms start going off in your head. It's like being up big in a tie break and 
and someone comes back or being up 5-2, then it's 5-4. It's just a different way that you're feeling. Yeah, especially, yeah, exactly, exactly. And if it's a, a match you're, you're, you know, you have a big lead in, you know you're certainly better than the guy, then it's, it's not, you're not going to panic at 40-15. You're not, you know, it'll be like, oh, shit, I lost the point, next point. But when you're playing someone who is the greatest in the world, no matter your level, you're playing someone who's at your level or higher, and you lose that 40-love point, there's a little bit of concern that comes into your mind. Yeah, so I think it's actually important to see, say what exactly happened. It had nothing to do with his boss. I, it was interesting because it was third set for all. I actually wrote down in my notes, easy hold for Kyrgios. It was 40-love. He was pitching a perfect game, serving and I just wrote easy hold for Kiros because I was, you know, kind of tracking what was going on. At 40 love, he hit a serve and then he came into the net kind of ill-advised for no reason. Novak hit it right at him and he had a terrible volley. Then at 40-15, same thing, ill-advised, came into the net, wasn't really thinking. So these were not points that, these were two points he just gave, he gave away to Novak. It wasn't, it wasn't Novak doing something good other than just staying in the point, you know? So those small that those two small lapses are what cost him the set and ultimately the match him, yeah you know? and those two points you never know what's going to happen in these huge matches it can happen at any point but those 40 11 40 15 is what i saw at least from it novak said in his post-match interview he said talking specifically about that game he said i did not win that game nick lost that game so certainly true and you, you, nick definitely wishes he could have get it could get that back but definitely definitely a tough tough way to go out that is a wolf he actually is a wolf i looked up the uh what what wolves do for their for you know to stalk their prey and it said wolves are opportunists they test their prey sensing any weakness or vulnerability through visual cues and even through hearing and scent so i i didn't know i don't know if that's why novak is considered to be the wolf but he doesn't give anything away himself because I think he understands how important those little details are for someone to see. And if he notices one small thing in your game, in this case, of course, the backhand, you know, going for Nick's backhand was as well, but he played in that stereotype perfectly there. Um, and okay. You also, we also said that the rallies look close. Everything looked pretty close, but at the same time, a lot of Novak matches look like that. You know, he kind of spins his opponent into like a web or like slowly drowns them where they don't really know what's happening. They feel like the point might be close, but Novak's actually doing something that they don't even, they don't even realize or they, they can't even comprehend, right? Yeah, totally. It's like, he's not, he's not going to go out there with a gun and try and kill his opponent. He's going to, it's like a frog in boiling water. He's going to put, put him in the water, slowly turn up the heat. And by the end of the match, by the end of that 30 minutes, they're going to be dead. And he's yeah. going to be a Grand Slam champion. And it happens and it happens time and time again. And to a lesser extent, maybe, uh, you know, against Van Rithjavan earlier and against, uh, you know, Sinner. But it happens time and time again where he finds these small strategic things that he does. And as normal fans, and even me as someone who has played tennis, you don't realize how precise Novak is with shots. Like when he's hitting the backhands down, the backhands cross court to Kyrgios, He's not hitting them too wide. He's not hitting them in the center so that, you know, Kyrgios could come around and hit a four. And he's hitting them really deep and kind of right in the middle of the, uh, of the end line and the middle line. And Kyrgios was just not able to break that pattern. I don't know what Kyrgios could have done, though, because a few times he did try to, you know, go down the line as backhand, and Novak was right there on the forehand whipping it back. So 
Kyrgios had no solution to that pattern. They just kept falling into the same backhand to backhand rally. And every time Novak saw Nick leaning back to his backhand, Novak's backhand down the line so many times, just incredible, caught him off guard and either hit a winner or hit a shot where Kyrgios was like flailing with his forehand and hitting it out or, or not, not even getting there. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly, you're t- exactly right. Took away his forehand. Nick Kyrgios' forehand in this match was almost a non-factor. Something I have never seen in a Nick Kyrgios match in my life because no matter who he's playing, no matter how many backhands he's getting, no matter what the other person's doing, he'll find a way to make his forehand a weapon, whether it's on the serve plus one, whether it's in the rallies, whether it's just slamming a ball at his opponent. And by kind of going after that backhand, it was the first time it basically completely neutralized the Kyrgios forehand. The only thing that he was able to do with it usually he's able to you know rip the ball um and you know slam some winners but he the only thing he was able to do was kind of roll it some heavy spin when Novak was on the other side of the court that was literally the ball's curling outside of the court and then lands in and you know you can only do that so many times and you're only gonna have the opportunity to win points on that particular shot so many times so he always looks rushed he always looked rushed on his forehand because it was Novak who was dictating when he was going to hit a forehand and what kind of forehand he was hitting, you know? Exactly. He looked rushed, and he looked like he wasn't getting into a rhythm on it as well. So when he gets into the rhythm on it, then, then, then it's over. It's game over. It's, he's going to get into a rhythm, hit a big one, hit a big one, hit a big one. And then when he has that rhythm, he may even just get one forehand. He doesn't need the rhythm anymore. He can just slap a winner. So, so Novak did a really good job of, of – you know, taking that away from him. And also another thing that they were both doing incredibly well, which was anticipating and the anticipation from these two guys might be, they might be the two best anticipators, to, uh, you know, on tour is, right now. If that's you know, a word. Huh? Anticipator. Is that a word? The best, they have the best anticipation. My bad. I say a lot of, <laughs> there's so many fucking words when we do these podcasts and bound to screw something up. But, um, but yeah, Novak's anticipation, arguably the greatest of all time. Kyrgios as well, up there, very good anticipation. And there were times where you'd see a ball let Novak, you thought the point was over, Kyrgios was there. Same on the Novak side. You, you think the point's over, Novak's there. So it made for some good tennis, exciting tennis, and just a lot of unexpected unexpected gets that are always, always I think pleasure as, to see. I think as tennis fans, we under appreciate how good Novak's rally ball is. His rally ball is the best, like consistent rally ball he's able to hit is by far the best in the world. You know, that, that's what we under, that's what we underestimate every single shot. He, he doesn't give Nick, he didn't give Nick, he doesn't give any of his opponents one little chance to do, to do anything. I think, you know how we sometimes talk about, look, we both played in college. We're both decent tennis players. Sometimes we say, okay, maybe one out of seven or one out of eight of our shots is like an ATP level shot. The Novak level shot, I think normal ATP pros might hit that one out of every four, one out of every five times. This is a normal route, the rally ball. And that was frustrating Kyrgios so much because he thought in his head, look, okay, I've seen Novak play. I've played against him. I'm going to be able to have opportunities. But just the generic Novak rally ball off of both sides just has so much velocity, is so deep. And it's nothing to the eye if you're looking at it, it doesn't look like anything special, but it's just a little bit extra than anyone else has on tour. Yeah, well, here's what I'll say. When we see these sets that he loses and it looks like a complete disaster, the first sets, he's not hitting that 
that rally ball. And that's why he's losing those sets because he's hitting a, a normal rally ball that's sometimes falling a little short in the court. And then he'll find his rhythm and have that really penetrating kind of arc ball and drive into the second set, third set, fourth set. And that's when he blows guys off the court. So it just takes him a little time to find it sometimes. But when he finds it, and he always does, it's just demolition derby. And it's, it's good night for his opponent. Yeah, it was interesting. Even going, even going into that, uh, the game that uh, Novak found the break where Kyrgios was up, um, he actually did have a decent amount of chances in that. So going into that, that four-all game, Djokovic had only had 20 serves, points on serve. Kyrgios had only had 32. So that pressure builds when also he wasn't getting any looks on Novak's serve. I, I have a question for you. What did you think about Novak's eight-minute break after the third set? Because in my head, I was thinking that, why is he stopping his momentum? But maybe it just he was thinking, let Kyrgios think about what just happened, and he has eight minutes to now think about the 40 love. And then even after going into the fourth set, Kyrgios was still making comments about that. What do you, do you think that was strategic? Do you think he just wanted a break? I feel like it was strategic. I think, I mean, I think maybe a little bit of both. Maybe he, he needed to just get off the court and do something. And also maybe he extended it to that amount of times to let eight Kyrgios- minutes let Kyrio see and th- sit there and think. And when, when you're sitting there thinking, dwelling on something that happened in the previous set, then your mind, you totally in- disengage from the match. You kind of almost forget that you have to go out there and play another set when it's been that long. Meanwhile, Novak is doing whatever the hell he's doing in the bathroom, laser focused on that fourth set. When Nick, Kyr- well, Nick Kyrgios is detaching for the ma- from the match for eight minutes, which is only going to help Novak um, in the beginning of the set. It, it seemingly didn't because Nick was pretty locked in there uh, in the fourth set on his serve for the most part. Um, but definitely definitely a tactic, a little, little gamesmanship from the Wolf. Gamesmanship from the Wolf. And, and shout out to uh, Nola Fam. Uh, also, who do you think the crowd was rooting for? Because I thought in so many of these Grand Slams, it's usually – Nadal or Federer are usually in it, and the crowd's generally rooting for them. I don't know, last year, maybe they were actually rooting for Novak against Berrettini, but I just didn't I don't know anything from the crowd. The crowd was very muted the whole, the whole match. It was a little odd, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, have no, I literally have no idea. I, I know at the end they were chanting, like, Novak, you know, yeah. but I, I don't know who. I think they were conflicted. I, I think they don't yeah. like Kyrgios, and they don't like Novak. Right. Um, which so, is apparent, of course. Which is what? Absurd that they don't like Novak or don't appreciate him at least. I know, yeah, there's so much disrespect for him for just absolutely no reason. Um, but what did you think of, I guess, moving on to what this means? Honestly, more so for Kyrios than Novak. Um, how do you think yeah, he's gonna well, how do you, how do you think he's gonna bounce back from this? Is it gonna be motivation? And I think it will be motivation because he said, I don't know if you saw his post match interview, but he said that if he had won this Grand Slam, it would have been the pinnacle of tennis, and he would have been lost motivation. Would have lost motivation. He would be like, "Why the fuck am I showing up to these ATP 250s now?" And would have probably just really disengaged. Um. Yeah, I, I don't know if he can say he can say that. I think he's justifying to himself. Maybe it was better that I lost now that I still have something to strive for. Potentially the U.S. Open, potentially tournaments during the. Uh, U.S. Open swing. I think for him now, unfortunately, what he needs to turn his attention to is this whole 
uh, situation in Australia with the criminal charges of assault. I, it, look, he was able to put it aside for the tournament, which made sense. He had something to focus on. He had Wimbledon to focus on. And the media, I think, kind of ignored it a little bit uh, as well. He didn't, he didn't get one question about it. No, he didn't get one question about it, which is, to me, a little bit, I don't, I don't want to say concerning, but I, I, look, I understand. Like, the, the fact that every single outlet was asking Elena Rybakina about her, you know, her heritage and her nationality and asking her to condemn a political action that she has literally nothing to do with, that her family could be in danger if she says anything uh, untoward. All the journalists were asking about that, but not a single journalist can ask about a legitimate assault charge that a player has. You know, doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to me. But I kind of agree with what oh. you were saying in the last podcast that tennis is seen as a quote-unquote proper sport and you don't want to highlight those things. <laughs> he also wore a red hat after the match, which was fucking tradition. Not that I don't care about that at all, <laughs> but not equating the assault and the red hat. Um, but I think, that, I think the assault thing is what's going to be interesting because – I don't know how it works in Australia, but two years in jail is a long time, or, you know, and he hasn't denied it. I feel like if it was a made-up claim, he would have just denied it. Why wouldn't you deny it, right? I mean, I have no, I, I have no idea. I don't know how, the, I don't know how the court system works in the United States. How the fuck would I know how it works in Australia? You know? No, I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I so I don't know if he was advised not to say anything. I don't know if they even asked him a question. Maybe he would have just said, like, I'm not talking about that right now. So... It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Hopefully, he'll be able to deal with that as he needs to and then get back for the U.S. Open. But yes, like, we just don't, we don't acknowledge that stuff in tennis, which is not a good thing. You know, it's, it's, it should be, if someone does something like that, it needs to be, they need to be reprimanded and people need to know that they've, what they've done. And people like Nicholas Basilashvili, don't hear about that too often. Yeah, he's a little lower in the rankings. Um, he's had some domestic violence issues. He also, uh, he also what? Sorry. Okay, so this is a we're gonna talk about this next episode. But there's also a match fixing claim right now on Buzzy Lashvili. So that guy's a dirtbag. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's being investigated for match fixing. Um, well, no, yeah. Well, that. Well, yeah. Him. Zverev, that was kind of thrown under the bus. I don't know. Like, I'm not here to say whether all these allegations and claims are true or false. It's not. It's not why we're here. But right. they were. They were. You know, charged or. You know, there are these alleged claims of what they did. So I would say the difference between the Kyrgios and the Zverev situation is that this. There, in my mind, there's a difference between a criminal court and allegations that someone puts forth. Like, the people who are denying the allegations always say, or defending the athlete, always say, if it really is true, then you would go to a court. And that's exactly what this girl who's accusing Curious has done. So I'm not saying we should take one more seriously than the other, but it's more serious for him in terms of the potential consequences. Um, and Okay, for, in terms of his tennis, I think that even though he said in the post-match interview, this was so stressful for me, I don't want to be back, I think he does want to be back. And I think... He said after the match as well that... I don't think... He didn't say that. He said after the match... He, he, he said, yeah, they asked him, do you want to be back? He said, I don't know. But anyway, he said after the match, there were so many points of the match that he was replaying in his head, and he really felt that he was just there with Novak, and he wished he could get basically a do-over of the match because he had was replaying certain... I would think the 40-love game would be one of them, maybe things that we're not thinking about. 
But if Novak is not able to play the U.S. Open, and if Rafa is not fit for the U.S. Open, Kyrgios definitely sees himself as the probably the third guy, him and Medvedev maybe. So I think just to prove to himself again, I believe we could see a, another extremely motivated Nick Kyrgios at the U.S. Open, assuming all else is equal with his brain, with his mental state, with his mental capacity. I think he's, I think he's finally taking tennis seriously. And I think he's finally appreciating tennis. It's hard to, in the past, when he said, I hate this sport, I hate everything. And now he's found his way of going about it where he can appreciate in his own way and he can bring his competitiveness to the sport and found his calling, his motivation to play. So I don't think that's going to go away. Yeah, no, I don't think it's going to go away either. I think he's going to, this was like he said in his post-match interview, this was the most locked in he's been for two weeks straight. He was trying to sleep right. He was trying to eat right. He wasn't like going out and partying and drinking and stuff. And, you know, and it paid dividends. I mean, he didn't win the championship, but I, he's seeing that it paid off. So I think that he will he will want to do this again, give it another shot, whether it's at the U.S. Open, he wants to be completely locked in, or if it's next year at Wimbledon, he wants to be completely locked in. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I think it will. And also, who knows, maybe this friendship with Novak will uh, turn into him drawing. Um, I'm not saying he's going to do what Novak does. Obviously, not. no one does that, but... Uh, maybe he'll learn a little bit more about how he can uh, treat his body right, do the right things to be prepared for slams, and um, and we'll maybe go in with kind of that same mindset he went in with Wimbledon to more tournaments. Well, we we can only hope because I do be... feel like I do feel like in that match Novak took his soul a little bit in terms of tennis, just in terms of the tennis, and I think Kyrgios was in awe of what Novak did to him and the place, the depths that he was able to put. Nick Kyrgiosin, and I don't think he's Nick has ever been on a court where he's not the one that's able to dictate. And I think his comments after the match calling Novak a little bit of a god, I don't think that that was out of nowhere. I think that was because what he had just experienced on the court, right? Well, yeah. I think, I think that experiencing that, he will now want to, to be able to do that to other people and maybe try to put in the work to make those changes to be like that. Also, yeah, I think he said that because he knew that he had a literal stellar serving performance and was still what on the scoreline looks like he was kind of routined. So that's just probably yeah. what led him to it say. The scoreline, it looks like, this, you know, Berrettini, you know, whatever. It, whatever. Lo- it, lo- it looks like some next-gen clown against Novak yeah. in the quarterfinals. Like, yeah. But it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't. No, no not at all. Not at all. But at the same time, I do think if you look at the stats, I think it kind of it kind of was a little bit because this is this is this is a stat that defines the match, right? So, one one thirty all. Novak was serving. That was the longest point in the match. Twenty three shots. Before that point, Kyrgios had won seven out of eight long rallies. After that point, one all thirty all. Nick won three out of nineteen. So that sounds that stat sounds exactly like some next gen who sticks with Novak for a set, and then Novak just every time the point goes longer, just um, off, the ground, off the ground. When they were in a rally off the ground in the last three sets, I never thought Kyrgios was going to win. And it clearly, yeah, no, 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 no. I, that, yeah, I, same thing, same thing. I was like, I was like, Novak gets it in. They're in a rally. There's like an eighty percent chance Novak's going to win this. And I'll, I'll say, I guess we can kind of close out on this match and talk about Elena. But 
you know, I, I'm recategorizing the ATP. I'm going to have, you have, you have Novak up here at the top, right? Then you have Nick Kyrgios, number two, Novak and Rafa, Novak and Rafa. I'm still categorizing Medvedev as next gen. And then maybe he's, maybe he's, maybe he's after. He's in a Grand Slam final, dude. Okay, 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 okay. Novak, Rafa, number one, Medvedev, Kyrgios. Then after that is the next, next gen, like the Carlos Alcaraz, Holgarun type of guys. Then down below is the next gen, like the freaking, like, uh, like all these guys who are just like, you know, I don't know. Rublev. Yes. Those guys are. You know, out of sight, out of mind right now. So, oh, totally. They're going to be back in sight at the U.S. Open. They'll be back in sight at the tune-up events, doing probably really well. <laughs> Someone's going to win the Western and Southern Open Prob- in Cincinnati and be like, "Oh, he's a contender!" Like, like Rublev. Probably doing really well. They're going to be. They're going to be hitting Washington D.C. They're going to win that event. They're going to win every event leading up to Those the U.S. Those guys love social media, man. Those guys love social media, and they probably love that the U.S. is not letting people that are not vaxxed in. So, yeah. <laughs> And then maybe, yeah, maybe we get a little Nole fam protest out in D.C. That'd be great. I would, I'd be, uh, as being based in D.C., I'd be happy to organize I, I would show up. So for those of you that don't know what Nole fam is, essentially it's a, a cult of Novak Djokovic fans uh, on Twitter around the world. And these fans are gr- absurdly obsessed with Novak to a point where it's almost a little bit weird. But they're obviously great people. And Novak's wife, uh, Yelena, organizes Nole Fam meetups. So, like, it's awesome. I think she's the only spouse that would of a tennis player that would do something like that. So that's awesome to see. So maybe she can get a nice little protest going outside the CDC in Washington, D.C. to let her husband and the beloved Joker Nole into the country uh, for the U.S. Open swing. John McEnroe said it. These politicians, just they just fucking get in the way of everything, ruining everything. I mean, at this point, if you say it's public health, I don't know what kind of drug you're on. You think that it's public health, that someone who's not vaccinated, not let into the country. But the ironic thing about this stupid administration is that in 2021, <laughs> vaccine was widely available to everyone. The vaccine was widely available. You could have had a mandate then, but... They just didn't think of that another restriction. They're trying to restrict people coming into this country as much as they want. A little, honestly, xenophobic, if you ask me. People restricting people to come into the country. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like um, it sounds like it's uh, what's the word we if you disc- discriminate against poor people? I uh, just I don't think there's a word for that, but um, elitist maybe. Elitist sounds a bit elitist. Look, look, there's a bunch of poor people out there who can't get access to the vaccine, who are foreigners looking to come to America and start a better life. And this administration is not allowing those people to come in simply because they're unvaccinated. A disgrace, an absolute disgrace. Joker Nole came in 2021. He he didn't infect anyone with COVID. There was no issues. But now, for some reason, 2022, when COVID is no longer an issue. He can't. So yeah, that's the fucking absurd down thing. Is, is, up, that, is that he was here down, in 2021? Down is up. Up is down when it comes to politicians. They don't know what they're doing. Um, I think it's ridiculous that Joker Nole can't play. Whatever you think of him, Nadal, Federer, who, whoever you are a fan of, this man should be the, afford the opportunity to play in New York because honestly, the U.S. Open is going to feel weird without him. It's going to feel empty. I, like even the Russian ban, which was bad, and we were against it. Not having Medvedev, Karatsev, Kachanov, Rublev there was not great, but it didn't feel like there was a giant hole in the tournament because you still had 
Novak and Rafa. If Novak's not playing, the whole tournament is going to feel off. Just like it's going to be um, the whole tournament is going to be watered down, and it's going not going to be a full U.S. Open, and it's going to be a disappointment. But let's get away from talking about the crooks in Washington D.C. and let's get to talking about someone who is essentially the polar opposite, and that is Elena Rybakina. Yes, Elena <laughs> Rybakina. Now also Wimbledon champion. Oh, can I just say one more thing about Joker Nole? <laughs> sure. Okay, this, is good. this could be an honorable mention. I feel like usually the honorable mentions are um, reserved for people who are less known in the tennis world, but I think Joker Nole deserves an honorable mention once in a while because he rarely gets those, even when he does win Grand Slam titles. So this is what I've heard... Um, this is a story that I heard secondhand. So Joker Nole basically learned of this bar in Serbia that will pay, um, that will basically give half price drinks when a Serbian or Serbia does something good in athletics. So I guess for, for Serbia, that's pretty much only Joker Nole. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that their, uh, you know, soccer team or anything does well, but Joker Nole basically heard of this bar secondhand. And he said, wow, that's so cool. Like, you know, they're kind of honoring me, I guess, by giving half off drinks. He decided to cover everyone's drinks if he won the match. So that's pretty incredible. That's a story that you're not going to hear. You know, if, if someone else did it, that would be blasting everywhere. But essentially, Joker Nolly heard about this bar, this promotion they had uh, for the half off. And he said, you know what? Don't worry about it, bar owner. Don't worry about it, patrons. I'll just cover everything. Um, how incredible is that? Wait, that's an unbelievable story. And you're not going to hear that on the mainstream. That's, where did you hear that? Uh, it was Twitter, yeah. Oh, wow. That's, that's unbelievable. See, so many things this guy Djokovic does that go unnoticed, unrecognized, and just because he's not making a big deal about it, people kind of don't take that into consideration when just talking about him as a human being, uh, which is absurd. So we'll definitely do some investigative journalism um, at a later date, maybe when tournaments are not in full swing, to get you kind of some more stories on Novak and kind of what he does um, outside of tennis. Um, or even within the tennis community that it's not really heard about. So I, we'll definitely bring that to you when we can. But now you can want we... to do trivia and stuff now, or you want to do this and then? No, let's, just do, let's just do this. Let's, let's, talk okay. about, let's talk about Elena. So yeah. Elena Rabakina, Wimbledon champion. Um, people were saying that this was a fairy tale. She, she herself also said it was a fairy tale, but also maybe that's just because that's what people were saying and she was repeating it. I don't know. But let's be honest here. It was extremely unexpected that she won. Extremely unexpected, but by no means a fairy tale. She's been in the top 30 uh, for a while. Top, Yeah, top 30. And she's been competing, beating girls like Simona Halep, girls like Karolina Pliskova, and other uh, girls, women that are at the top of the game. So I personally was a little shocked that her w win of a Grand Slam came right now, given her results, given her health issues that she's Alluded, alluded to in the press conferences, her allergies, her COVID, um, and whatever health issues he had. So a little bit unexpected, and I was shocked that it came now, but by no means a fairy tale. Um, Drew, you and I have been talking about Elena for, you know, over a year now, saying how much potential she has. We saw it back in 2020 when she was on that incredible run, uh, winning titles right before COVID hit. So um, not a fairy tale on my end, but awesome for her. Uh, one of my favorite players on the women's side, um, even even before this tournament. Yeah, the people who are saying that tennis fans were saying this came out of nowhere or you couldn't have seen this coming, 
are not paying attention because she's been a staple of the top 30. Anyone who's watched tennis is aware of Elena Rybakina. Any woman who has a 120 mile per hour serve um, is someone that you have to take notice of, you have to take an account of. She was 100, and, 100 to one to win the tournament coming into the event. I think part of that had to do with her recent form. She lost to Serenko uh, at one of the grass court tournaments, looked very inconsistent. But the reason it is 100 to one is because it doesn't matter how big your serve is, it doesn't matter how big your forehand is. What matters at a Grand Slam is being able to put together, you know, seven matches over 14 days. And it's, so, you know, 2020, she did do that in some smaller tournaments, but the odds makers, and honestly, even me, I did not, I was skeptical of her ability to do that. So your peak level as a tennis player actually doesn't matter at all when it comes to winning Grand Slams. It's about being consistent. And I think, you know, some of her consistency had to do with the fact that she's, Playing with house money this tournament didn't come in with big expectations. Uh, she said it herself. I was expecting to maybe like lose early. Uh, she had a huge win against Andrescu with a really tight second set tiebreak in the third round. And from then on, she basically told herself that I'm enjoying uh, being here, enjoying uh, playing. And I think a lot of people look at Elena and she's, she's kind of a shy girl, quiet, introverted. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't expect the most of herself. I think every time I've seen her play against a top player, whether it was Halep against at the U.S. Open um, last season, or you know, in 2020 when she was having her come up when she played Ons the first for the first time in Dubai before the tour shut down. You can tell by her demeanor on the court and how she used to get a little more angry at herself. I know this tournament has been kind of defined by her calm demeanor, but she goes on the court every time expecting to win. So she has that. She's always had that confidence and belief. Um, and sometimes that puts a little more pressure on you, right? When you think that you should be number one in the world or you should be winning Grand Slams. And this tournament was different where she came in with lower expectations and said for the first time, honestly, remind me of Nick a little bit. I actually enjoyed uh, playing tennis, the tennis part of uh, uh, the event a little more. Um, so yeah, an incredible, incredible tournament and tough match in the finals. First player in, I think, 14 years, the first set winner didn't win. So way to stick with it after losing the first set. A lot of players would easily collapse in their first Grand Slam. She didn't, Grand Slam final, she didn't do that. She, she, she didn't do that. She came through, like, kind of as you highlighted, a tough draw with Andrescu and Halep. And what is a game style, her game style, that big serve, big hitting off the ground, serve plus one uh, kind of game is something that, you know, it's not easy to make amends when you're not playing well, you know? So when she lost that first set, I was honestly a little bit concerned for her because with that game style, it's not something where you can work your way into a match, work your way into that second set. It's a game style where you just got to keep firing and hope you start hitting your targets. And she did that. She stayed mentally composed, no emotional volatility. Like we saw with Ons basically throughout the match. So she was acting like a major champion during that final and it showed and um, really happy that she was able to, to win it. Yeah. I think Ons, when it came to Ons, even I could see the tension, even when she won the first game, she broke, I think immediately in the first set and she had like a huge celebration, which is, you want to see someone getting pumped up. But me, it just, from the first game, I saw the tension that Ons had, even after she won the first set with this pump. I don't know if you're trying to celebrate that like that after a relatively routine first set win, double, double break. 
Um, so I could see the nerves coming from Ons. The other thing I'll say is that it helped Elena to be returning in the second set. Uh, she got broken, which is not good. Usually you want to come out and be serving to maintain a lead throughout the set. But in that first game, I think she just told herself, I'm going to take some cuts at the ball and attack Ons' serve, try to make her feel my pressure. And that was the really the turning point in the match, was that break there. Because after that, Ons couldn't keep in touch with her, you know? Yeah. And to keep in touch. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And also, Ons was maybe, like, first set she was bringing her in as well and maybe deploying the correct tactics because Elena's volleys are not not her strength. Playing that kind of soft hands at the net is definitely not something that she's the best at. But Ons started to rush in executing her game plan. I think she got so flustered, so scared, and was bringing Elena in, but hitting these drop shots off of balls that were, you know, the first shot in the rally, second shot in the rally, when she could have, you know, gotten into a groove and then brought her into the net. But she was chipping these drop shots that were ill-advised drop shots that were three, four, five feet above the net. And obviously, Elena, she's not some beginner. She's a pro tennis player. She's going to win those points. I actually, I also thought, I also thought that, you know, Ons, what she said after the match too, unfortunate her mindset because after she won the first set she was saying to herself that I don't want to lose a second that was an immediate thing in her mind and whenever you're thinking you don't want to lose something it usually ends up happening and I was surprised to hear that mindset because she was 30 and one after winning the first set in 2022 and it's you know yeah so Mm -hmm. I mean every match no matter what match you play um Grand Slam final I would think is the same obviously I haven't been there but um, or at any maybe one day you never know. maybe maybe one day road to I'm currently on my road to one ATP point, uh, so maybe maybe <laughs> maybe you can make a Grand Slam final in some capacity like you could be a special advisor to a player or it, in oh, some okay that's the goal the goal is the goal in, the goal is to in some capacity make a Grand Slam final so so like become a coach become a I don't yeah advisor in any sort of way to a player and have them. I would be going crazy. I would literally be going nuts. I did have a, I did, I did have a dream once that I won the U.S. Open. Um, I think it was, I think it was in, co- I was in college, um, so I was, I was playing in college. But like you know, it's still when I still played tennis like competitively. I had a dream that I won the U.S. Open. The greatest feeling of my life was in a dream. Was in a dream when I won the U.S. Open. I can't really compare to that. The only thing I can compare is I had a dream where I was a wide receiver in the Super Bowl and like I caught a touchdown. That was pretty. Pretty good, but obviously nothing comparing to win any tennis, any professional. Sport. I'll, I'll I just. Rather, I would rather win a ATP Challenger than catch a touchdown in the Super Bowl. I I will say, brutal brutal wake up. Woke up after that dream, realized I didn't win the U.S. Open. Realized that I was in my dorm room in college, and that I had to go to some bullshit class at nine thirty, and um, I was and I was late. I couldn't get breakfast. That's yeah, it's unfortunate. Super unfortunate. But so uh, you say when you say. How would you define it, okay? If you, would you say if you're in the box of a player in any capacity for a Grand Slam final that you have, like in our definition of, you know, making it, that you, it's your win as well in some way. If, you, if you've made the cut to be one of those, I don't know how many it is, eight, nine people that are in the box, part of the team, part of the core team of a player, do you, yeah. you consider that to be, you are contributing enough to a Grand Slam final? Uh, I mean, you're obviously not contributing as much. Right, as but you, you can consider it, I've won it. Uh, I, I would consider I've helped a player do it, but also I wouldn't say anyone in the box. It's only the 
the people that travel with them, their te- core team, because they'll invite people to the box. Like just because you're, I don't know, a sponsor. Yeah, no, a sponsor would be sponsor counts. You're giving them money. You're, yeah. you're helping them get there. But then yeah. there's guests. If you're a guest, then no. But if you're a sponsor, trainer, coach, advisor, consultant, whatever, then okay. I, I I would. Count. I have one. I have one borderline question. Is the Matteo Berrettini, the owner of the Italian restaurant in New York City, that he cooks for Matteo every night and he goes to every one of his matches. Does he make the cut or no? No, he's a friend. Okay, friend. friend. He's a friend. So, I mean, if you guys don't know, pretty cool. Matteo went to some Italian restaurant in New York, really liked the food. Met the owner a few years ago, really liked the owner. And now the owner comes and sits in his box at the U.S. Open. So that's a little, a little fun, fun, cool story. But yeah, getting, I guess, getting back to the, the match now instead of instead of talking about our hypothetical grand slam wins uh let's well, get actually, this actually segues into one of the things about this match that i was very unfortunate actually is that both players parents were unable to attend the match due to visa issues so on obscene obscene parents again once again politicians are ruining once in a lifetime experiences for you know kids and parents i i probably elena wouldn't say she won so it doesn't really matter if, if you're gonna win who cares um, but still, it's an unfortunate that both of these players' parents were deprived of visa to see their daughters compete in the pinnacle of sport just because of basically where they came from. It's crazy to me. Yeah, it's super unfortunate. And I will say I'm actually pretty happy that, that a Russian player won this tournament. It's just a big, a big slap in the face to whoever made the decision about banning Russians and Belarusians, right? Totally. And, and, and it's karma, right? And you think... I don't know if you believe in a higher power or something like that, but if you did, then this is exactly what it would be. You try to ban people based on where they're from and someone who was born and brought up in Moscow wins the event. However, I will say she's representing Kazakhstan, um, Elena, and it was nice to see the president of the Kazakhstani Tennis Association in her box. Talk about probably one of the best investments in the history of the world at seeing an Elena Rabakina that Russia didn't believe in and say, I would, I'm going to invest in this kid, you know? Yes, amazing, amazing investment in her tennis. And I'm actually shocked that the Russian Federation thought that she wasn't going to make it. I mean, she's a six foot, she's six foot and hits massive serves. Like, you just need a little bit of good coaching uh, and and she'll be on her way to doing big things. So I'm shocked that the russian federation didn't give her a chance what what are they supporting like players like anna kalinskaya over <laughs> over rabakina that's just She's shorter. i think elena was shorter i think she had a growth spurt maybe later oh she did, okay. I, I don't know I, this is all rumors so okay speaking about sponsorship and people who really dropped the bag russian tennis federation and also they're it's pissing me off the russian tennis federation is trying to claim her as their vic like as their player which is not true she's representing kazakhstan uh she Played for the Olympics for them. She said it was one of the greatest experiences of her life. Um, she played um, Fed Cup for them. And again, reporters being reporters, looking for a story, putting her family in danger by asking her specifically about the war, asking her about telling her she's a Russian is just absolutely disgusting. You know, ask about, ask about the match. Um, I mean, they were literally asking about their, uh, half the questions were about her being Russian or, or, or like these fucking reporters asking if she condemns the war and um or them asking about her thoughts on the royal family like she she she, she doesn't give that. a fuck about the royal family she no one gives that. a fuck about the royal family he handled that incredibly well 
for someone who is 23, clearly an introverted person. And same thing when it came to the fans, you could see there was a muted celebration. I didn't see, no matter who wins, even if Novak wins, usually if the fans explode, at least on match point. Um, but after the match, she was very gracious, thanked the fans for all their support, and just shows there's another way to go about, um, you know, killing them with kindness, I would say, Elena Rybakina. You don't have to be aggressive, like Nick Kyrgios. You don't have to yell about certain things, but um, her whole demeanor struck me as someone who's going to be, you know, people say she doesn't have a magnetic personality. I actually disagree. I think she has a great personality. I think she can appeal to a lot of people. And I think her sponsorships are going to be, her options are going to be wide open. Yeah. Who's, I don't agree with whoever says that she's not whatever, whatever the word you just described her as. Maybe not, I said not marketable. She's not marketable. Who the hell said that? that or person... she doesn't have a magnetic personality because just because Ans, Ans has an incredible personality. Okay. Elena has a good personality. You don't have to compare you know, one to the other, right? They're, yeah, they're different personalities. She's also a lot older. She's 27. Elena's 23, right? She's more comfortable in her own skin kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. Um, so. But, okay, wait, I, I have to say one thing about another, someone who dropped the bag big time. 2009, Adidas had Novak Djokovic and Andy Murray. They were deciding who they wanted to pick to be their player. They went with Andy Murray. They kind of scoffed Djokovic on the offer. Under Adidas, Murray won two slams. After Adidas, Djokovic won 20 grand slams. So, wait, wait why, did, why could they not do both? I just think they didn't have the budget. They wanted to pick one, and they just, yeah. That's actually hilarious. I had no idea about that. I, I, do, remember when, I do remember when Novak wore Adidas. Mm-hmm. And my guess, he, they probably wouldn't have retained him once he won a few grand slams or whatever and got bigger offers, but still pretty wild. Yeah, pretty wild. Maybe they could have retained him. I don't know. But uh, maybe maybe Elena Rybakina will be switching away from Adidas. Maybe she'll head over yeah, to that. Elena Rybakina, currently Adidas player. So I guess they maybe picked it up a little bit on that. They have a Grand Slam champ on their hands now. Yeah, so shout out Adidas. Good job, guys. Um, just do we want to talk more about, about the match? I, yeah, I, would kinda, yeah. we... I think the, you know when it, com- when it comes to the match, um, third set, Coming into the third set, my thought was, Elena Rubakin has talked about this before. I get nervous when I close out matches uh, on her serve. Prime example of that was the third round against Andrescu. She was up 5-4 and just had a horrific service game. Um, and it's hard to believe because her serve is just so good that she can do that, but she can. And I thought it was really important for Ons to keep it, you know, keep it within a break or keep it even. And she just wasn't able to do that at all. A double break. The, the game of the match was Elena Rybakina up 3-2, went down love 40. Honestly, contrast this with, with Kyrgios, where he was up love 40. He was up 40 love. You know, I've seen Elena before meltdown at love 40 and think in her head this game's over and kind of not throw it, but just, yeah, playing those love 40 points, you forget that that's, that's still a point. That's still a point. 40 love, love 40 a lot of players mentally check out and she locked down. She won that game to make it four, two and the third set. And at that point uh, she had one hand on her, on the trophy, you know? Um, exactly. So. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I'll just say like from the perspective of the strategy Ons, once the drop shot wasn't working, you could tell that she was panicking, you know, like she was panicking because she didn't think anything, she could do anything based on how well Elena was playing. Elena was playing really well off the ground. Elena is, if they're both playing at the top 
their top level. Elena's a better ball striker, and from the back of the court, she's going to be better. But Ons did. There were other things she could have done. She could have um, threw in some slices from the baseline and kept that going to Elena's backhand. Do anything in anything in your capacity to get Elena low. She's a big girl. She's tall. Um, so she, the, really, the only thing she tried was bringing her to the net. There was no. There was no problem solving, I guess, from Ons. It was her running into a brick wall and just going back, running into that brick wall again and finding no way around it. Yeah. No, no I mean, no, no, um, like I'm not taking anything away from Elena. She played great as well, but I'll say Ons really just didn't. She did also self-destruct a little bit. I agree with you. 100%. She was going nuts. She was going crazy. She's getting so you, pissed. You could, um, yeah. I'll just say you could tell the weight was on her shoulders. I think Elena was... Had it, sure, she might have been nervous in the first set, but it didn't look like she had this big pressure on her shoulders of some huge expectations. And to me, what it looked like for Ons was she looked, she knew what was slipping away, what she was potentially losing from losing this match. And Elena wasn't really thinking about that. She was just thinking about the match and the shots. She wasn't thinking about the money or she wasn't thinking about what, how this will change her life. I think Ons to be honest, with the hype, especially being the first woman from you know, North Africa, first Arab woman, that got to her. Because she yeah. knew big of a deal that would be. Yeah, yeah, possibly. But Elena's the first Kazakh to ever win a Grand Slam. Yes, first Kazakh to ever win a Grand Slam. <laughs> maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll see, hopefully, Bublik or Yulia Putin-Seva win one. Yeah, they're also... They're also I know, I know, I know. Are there any legitimate? This is so cool, though. What a great business model by the whoever decided in Kazakhstan they were going to give this budget to tennis people. Because like, there's just millions of people in the world that wouldn't even be mentioning that their country if this didn't happen, right? I mean, so it's great that they're able to kind of have that budget for tennis players and poach some of these, you know, ethnically Russian uh, players. So shout out to the. We talk, we've been bashing politicians a little bit on this show. Shout out to the Kazakh politicians. Shout out to them. Whoever made this decision. Shout out. Yeah. Great. They got a, they're running a great government over there. Yeah. I don't know what they're doing, but we should do some, we should do a little investigative journalism. Maybe go, maybe go to the Nur Sultan 250. I think they have a couple of those. It's a beautiful, it's actually a beautiful country. It's a beautiful country. You know, you guys should, uh, you know, listeners should go check it out. I think we're going to check it out. Um, anyone, anyone wants to come with, let us know. I really hope this is not some dictatorship or something. Okay. Human rights, human rights organizations have described the Kazakh government as authoritarian. That's what human rights organizations say. We don't know if that's true. We don't know. We, we haven't heard both sides. We haven't heard the Kazakh government's take on This that. is all speculation. Honestly, they should be asking Elena Rybakina about that because that's who she's representing. I think that's fair. A hundred percent. That's a fair, that's a fair <laughs> question. It would be more uh, fair than asking her about Russia. Um, but, okay. To be honest, let's talk about the celebration or non-celebration. Um, it pissed me off again. People, people just love to criticize. I, I'm not against criticizing people when they, you know, we were criticizing Kiggs for his domestic abuse, but it seemed like she got more, you know, questions about her muted celebration than Kiggs did about his domestic abuse. I also, like, I don't know, what is she going to say to that? Like, oh, yeah, like, I didn't go crazy. Like, is there even an answer to that? Are journalists getting good answers from these dumb questions? No, so then why are they asking them? Yeah, I think that, that, you know, they don't represent, I think the majority of the tennis fans would be on our side uh, when it comes to just appreciating, you know, you just won the Wimbledon title. You can celebrate however you want to celebrate. If you want to do a Daniel Medvedev dead fish, dead fish celebration, do it. 
If you want to spin around your racket like it's a top, do it. If you want to throw your shoes in the stands, do it. You've earned your right as a Wimbledon champion to do whatever the hell you want and with whatever hell equipment you want to do it. So that, that's pissed me off. But again, I think the silent majority agrees with us because we had uh, the most likes in the history of our Twitter account. Now, Twitter, love means zero pod. Go follow us on both social <laughs> media. But, um, so Pam Shriver was questioning her celebration. What do you think of that? People were saying, oh, it's kind of odd, kind of weird. I responded very directly. Shout out to Pam if you're listening. I said, loved it from our account. Loved it. Every player has their own solid approach. This calmness and attitude is what brought her to the final. We only have 20, I think, no, we have 40 followers on Twitter. That got 100 and, 105 likes. So clearly the tennis fans, the true tennis population, the silent majority agree that let Elena do whatever she wants. And I think love the muted celebration. You know, some players go over the top with it. Why? We don't have to do that. Yeah, amazing. She's like, she's like the Medvedev of the women's game, except she can keep that even when she wins the slam final, which is amazing. <laughs> Literally amazing. I will say, uh, I guess we're kind of wrapping things up, but I will say I'm disappointed Kiggs didn't win. For I wanted Nole to win, um, but I, I'm disappointed he didn't win because we didn't get that picture of him and Elena Rybakina at the, at the Champions Ball. That would have been literally a hilarious photo, literally two polar opposite people but both Wimbledon champions and both just studs. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to say, like, do you think Kiggs's girlfriend would be a little nervous? Uh, it's, it doesn't even matter because I don't know. It would have been, that would, that would be a cute couple. Lara Bakken and Kiggs, total opposites, but opposites attract. Yeah. I think the only thing that I'll say about the Wimbledon women's final compared to the men's is even today, the men's final, the first set, it was kind of people, they were feeling each other's game out. It wasn't the best tennis. Um, and obviously it was a grand slam final. And I felt like the same way with the women's. Like, I don't think Ons played an incredible first set. She played good, but Elena didn't play great. And I was thinking, like, just to pilot the women's game, I think, personally, it'd be cool if there could be three out of five for the women. Three out of five for the women, maybe for the semis and finals. Instead of a, instead of a fifth set, play a 10-point tiebreak. Then you're not really extending the match that much. Okay, there you go. There's, there, there's, a, like, there's an interesting point, because you said five sets. I didn't agree with that, but maybe like a new format, but also it's a little weird. I, I'm not a fan of doing this sh- shit like like the finals is like a three out of five. The only place where I think that's acceptable is at Kalamazoo in the juniors. Um, yeah, I, well, they did do that in the ATP thousands. Yeah, at, they, but they like, stopped. Stop. They stopped. Yeah, they stopped. But um, I, I actually like that in those ATP thousands. You didn't like it? Mm, not really. I, not really. I, I, don't, I don't, I just think it's a little weird, but... Okay. But yeah. Last thing. I'll, last thing I'll say before we go to honorable mentions is about Elena. Love that she's not on Instagram after winning, and posting yes. posting nonsense. She's probably just with her team, her family, enjoying it, and not going crazy on social media. So we'd love love to see that. She'll probably have to go crazy on social media soon with all the sponsorships she's gonna get. Um. So, but we should talk about how how you think this. What does this mean for her? We do know what this what does mean for her, but how she's going to handle it. I think she, I think she's going to handle it perfectly. I think she's going to like. There's going to be a dip in her level, regardless. I think it's always going to happen to someone who wins a major. Right. But I think there's a lot of upside to her game still. Um, she's really one dimensional, and she was able to win a major while she's you know one dimensional esque a little bit. So a lot of upside on her game. Uh, she's extremely composed. During matches, I assume that'll translate to off-court shit that she's going to have to do. So I think there will be a little bit of, of a dip in the level and maybe 
you know, just I hope, adjusting I hope, to dealing with it. But overall, I think she's going to be. I hope that I hope that she still look is looking to improve and change her game because yes, it's great that she won a Wimbledon title, but there's so much more that she has to offer. With I think maybe just getting more margins on her strokes and not going 100% all the time and still play. She can still keep her brand, attacking brand of tennis, but the reason she's been, quite frankly, a disappointment over, over the past two years. She's been a disappointment for her talent. After 2020, yeah. Yeah, she's been a disappointment. The reason is, is because she can't, you know, go bigger with bigger margins and come through matches sometimes where she's not playing well and she kind of just has this mindset that her Stefano Vukov, her coach, has instilled in her, which is just be aggressive all the time. I hope that she is actually looking to improve and maybe she can take some things from this fortnight, what she's done and implement that into her game. So that's the only thing I'll say about that. Yeah. Agree. Should we do, I think that kind of wraps up the. What about ons? Uh, ons. Yeah. I don't I know. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But well, let's just, let's just get to honorable mentions. Okay. Riv, I, know, I know you said you had a bunch. I, I have. I, I, I want to. Because we don't have trivia. I don't have a tri- give a trivia. Yeah, we, we're not doing trivia, so let's do a couple minutes of honorable mentions, and we'll wrap it up. Um, do you have uh, honorable mentions, too? Yeah, I'm going to use the ones that I remember. Okay. Uh, yeah. We'll just go one each. So my first one is Liv Hoved from Texas, American, junior girls, Wimbledon champion. Shout out, Liv. 16 years old. Um, that's a huge win. Hope to see you on the tour soon. Always great for us to see an American do well at Wimbledon. Awesome. I'm I don't know much about her, but she's only 16, so I'm sure she's amazing. I'm, uh, I'm going to give a honorable mention to Dominic Team winning his first match back at a challenger. Can't, I'm not sure where exactly it is, but I saw that he won a match. So um, great to see him back on the winner's board. And hopefully he can do, get ready and have a good U.S. Open swing. Although I think that's highly unlikely. He didn't he lose the next round though. Yeah, he lost. Yeah, but he got a win. That's really, really, really not good. Uh, I have two more. How many more do you have? Actually, uh, I, I have three more. I have two. I have two more. Pick two, and then I'll I'll say two. Okay. The Tallinn – okay, so there's actually a WTA 250 this year in Estonia. It's in Tallinn, Estonia, end of September. Um, I'm, why am I mentioning that? Why is that an honorable mention? It's because the tournament director said the goal for the tournament, for the WTA 250 in Estonia, the ultimate goal is that we want to become as famous as Wimbledon. So <laughs> shout out to that guy. If, if anyone's ambitious, that's, it's him. If you're looking at a guy who, you know – Shooting for the stars. I, I don't think that's gonna happen, but I appreciate that. I'm not even I'm not even gonna call that guy a clown. I'm gonna call that guy a motivated individual. Yes. Motivated. That guy. But I did see an article today saying that they're having issues with getting tennis balls. That might be well, maybe they'll still be as famous as Wimbledon, but they'll have to play with some other kind of ball. So that will make them at, at that level if they have to play with maybe not tennis balls, something else. Who knows? <laughs> oh gosh. Um all right, we're gonna go one more each. Yeah. All right, I'm going to go – I'll go one, you go one. I'm going to go uh, someone who was in the player box at the Wimbledon finals, women's, and she was in the Rabakina box, and that is Elena Rabakina's sister, Anna, I think, Rabakina. So – Oh, yes, Anna Rabakina. I saw a- a- she was like, so nervous, so emotional during the entire match. 
I guess all of the emotion that was in Elena was just being transferred to her, I guess. Uh, so it was really fun to watch her emotions kind of throughout the match. So that was an interesting one. So um, that was, I thought, a good honorable mention. And also honorable mention to the Kazakh Federation president. Yeah, 100%. Um, I'm trying to find mine. Let's just wrap it up there. Too late. Uh, no, no, I have a great one. You, you will fucking love this. Who? All right, go. Um, okay, so my shout-out goes to a UFC fighter. It's Rafael Fazayev. He won a UFC bout on Saturday night and proceeded after the match, after the bout, to call out Rafael Nadal to fight him to see who the ultimate Rafael is in sports. <laughs> I'm not kidding you, this happened. <laughs> he called out Rafael Fazayev, called out Rafael Nadal to, for a fight. And I, I, I just, I don't know if he knows um, that Rafael Nadal has an ab injury right now. I don't think he'll be wanting to get punched in the stomach. But yes, that's, that's insane. Oh my God. That's one of the greatest things I've ever heard. We're going to he end it. He knocked out Rafael Dos Anjos. So he knocked out another Rafael and he wants to play Rafael Nadal in like the Rafael finals, I guess. Fight oh him. my God. I don't I'm not even going to That is such a good one. We're going to leave it at that. That was amazing. There's a lot on the line. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many Grand Slam opportunities uh, to win the trophy I will still have. I had so much anxiety, so much. I was already feeling so nervous. With a breakthrough.